This is the Emergency Medical Minute. Real, raw, relevant emergency medical education. Enjoy the show. I would like to invite up our next speaker. He is a toxicologist that hails from the state of Mississippi. He is currently here in, uh, at Denver Health, about to finish his toxicology re- uh, fellowship, and is going to be going back to Mississippi. And he's going to talk with us about the pharmacology and the pharmacokinetics of marijuana. So please, Dr. Myrick, please help me welcome him to the stage. Uh, so, a little tough act to follow up. Uh, I think you got the more interesting uh, topic with historical relevance. My talk was a little more dry, so we're going to start with kind of pharmacology, pharmacokinetics, uh, move into acute chronic toxicity, uh, and then briefly, briefly talk about uh, kind of diagnostic testing and uh, the pros and cons and pitfalls of when we do this and look for, for marijuana. Uh, so, pharmacology. So, cannabis, as we talked about, so cannabis is a plant. That's the genus, uh, species sativa indica. It's got about 60 pharmacologically active compounds, all pretty similar. Uh, cannabinol, cannabidiol, uh, delta-9, tetrahydrocannabinol, the, the big ones. Uh, but again, 60 active compounds. So, a lot of times when we say ma- marijuana, and THC, they're not really interchangeable, uh, especially considering you know, there's drugs like dronabinol, which are 100% THC that act very differently uh, compared to marijuana. <clears throat> and the, the syndromes you see are very different as well. Uh, and we'll also kind of briefly talk about the term cannabinoids. So when we say cannabinoids, that's really anything that's active at the cannabinoid receptor. Marijuana, again, is a collection of uh, about 60 cannabinoids, um, which kind of balances the syndrome you see versus, I don't know if you guys have seen like spice and a lot of these synthetic cannabinoids. These are very different in their pharmacokinetics and pharmacology. <clears throat> so, uh, again, we're primarily talking about THC when we talk about marijuana. It's the major psychoactive component, but again, there's lots of different ones. Um, so pharmacokinetics, we'll, we'll start with pharmacology. So you have two that we've identified, two cannabinoid receptors. You have a CB1 and a CB2. Predominantly, CB1 is in the brain, and predominantly, CB1 is the one that is responsible for a lot of the psychoactive, um, uh, psychoactive manifestations of marijuana. CB2 is more like what we call the peripheral receptor of uh, marijuana, and it really the, the uh, effects of it are much more hard to describe, but we know it affects the immune system to some, to some extent. Uh, outside of that, it's, we're still kind of learning about it. And a lot of the problems, like he says, it's a Schedule One drug, which doesn't make research impossible, but it makes it very difficult because you have to go through uh, special licensing, and then even then, you're very regulated on what you can do. You, you definitely can't do an RCT, which is the gold standard of 
you know, determining if a drug is effective and uh, what the side effects of it are. So CB1, again, is the, primarily the, the psychoactive component. CB2, we now, so cannabidiol, if you've seen this stuff with CBD, uh, especially if you've seen it kind of off-label use for seizures and pediatrics, we're learning now that it has some psychoactive components to it, <clears throat> but much less so to CB1. So this is really nerdy stuff, and you can kind of tune out if you don't, uh, aren't interested in this part. But So the receptor is a G-protein-linked uh, receptor, uh, which means it's not voltage-gated. Uh, so when CB1 binds, the receptor is actually on the presynaptic terminal. So nerve terminals, you have a presynapse and a postsynaptic terminal. Uh, it's on the presynaptic terminal. So you actually, we all have endocannabinoids, which are, we have these receptors for a reason. For whatever reason, we've evolved to have these receptors. We know they modulate the neurotransmitters that signal things in our brains. And basically what cannabinoid receptors do is they go back to the presynaptic terminal and tell it to calm down, in a nutshell. Uh, the CB2s are more or less the same way, but that's really all we know as far as the effects that we can see in study. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> um, so moving forward, what we see when we see toxicity is there's four major things. We know it increases cerebral blood flow. We know it increases the heart rate, so it causes tachycardia. We know it causes vasodilatation, or the most common thing you see with it is postural hypotension. So uh, if you get up too quickly, if you're ever almost blacked out, uh, that's pretty common. And then the fourth thing is what he said, it decreases intraocular pressure. Um, and again, the way it does this is it's very hard to elucidate. It's, it's tough to say, because we just can't really research it that well. <clears throat> Uh, CB2, like I said, we know it affects uh, neuromodulation in the immune system, so how your immune system responds, but whether or not it decreases your immune system's response to bacteria, viruses, make you, makes you more susceptible to infection, it's really hard to say. There is no evidence that really strongly suggests it does, but we do, we do know that it affects the immune system. And that's why in, in some populations it is used to... Uh, decrease the inflammatory response and maybe use in the future to decrease disease of the immune system like uh, uh, Sjogren's, lupus, and other autoimmune diseases. Um, so that's kind of the pharmacology. I know it's kind of not all that interesting. Uh, I'm talking about G-linked proteins, etc. Uh, but pharmacokinetics is a little more interesting. So we'll start with smoking. So smoking, so we know there's like different routes of administration of a drug, right? You can eat it, we can inject it, you can smoke it. So injecting is by far the quickest way to get a drug into your bloodstream, into the target organ. Smoking is pretty much the same as IV. A little delayed, but very, very similar. Oral is obviously delayed, and when we talk about oral, oral ingestion, especially with marijuana, a lot of things change. So we talk about bioavailability a lot. <clears throat> If you inject something in your bloodstream, it is effectively 100% bioavailable. I mean, it all absorbs, right? Uh, insufflation or smoking is, insufflation would be, it's snorting. Uh, and smoking are pretty close, near 100%, but again, bioavailability 
is very dependent on the compound. Marijuana does not have a very high bioavailability. Uh, and honestly, it doesn't really have a really high uh, bioavailability smoking either. Um, that being said, the peak effects are very soon. So when you smoke a cigarette, or in this sense, in instance, marijuana, you reach peak concentrations within eight minutes. Uh, with, and the bioavailability is somewhere between 10 and 35%. So if you think, you know, again, nowadays it's tough to say because the way we've grown and bred marijuana, the potency is very, very high considering what a lot of these early studies were. Back in the 60s, you know, a, a normal marijuana cigarette might contain 27 milligrams of THC. Now it can be significantly higher. Um, but you still, you reach peak concentrations at about eight minutes. So with ingestion, it usually takes about two to four hours. And then in certain individuals, this can be delayed even out to six hours. And so it's not infrequently that we see in the clinical world, a first time user, uh, they might ingest marijuana, wait an hour, oh, nothing's happening. I'll take some more, wait an hour. I still don't really feel it, take some more. And then eight hours later, they're extremely high and not having a good time. <clears throat> uh, so, moving kind of forward with pharmacokinetics, there's two major metabolites. So these are all meta uh, hepatically metabolized. When we talk in toxicology, you either metabolize it with your liver and then pee it out or you just pee it out. Those are really the two, two major pathways. There's obviously others, but we'll stick to those two. So marijuana goes through and is metabolized by your liver. It's metabolized to first an 11-hydroxy metabolite, which is clinically not very important. And then it's metabolized again to an inactive carboxylic acid metabolite, which is really the predominant metabolite in your urine that gets tested for, um, mainly in states that don't legalize it, but really anywhere. Because again, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, your employer can still test you. Uh, that was the dish, the dish network case a couple of years ago that was held that, you know, regardless of what your state decides, the employer still kind of can do what they want to do. And so their testing is up to them. Um, with testing, so the testing is usually an enzyme uh, linked amino assay. The, the cutoff is 20 nanograms per milliliter. That is like an accumulation of all the metabolites. Um, and it's really tough to, for us as, as, as toxicologists to really interpret because what we'll talk about is acutely, it's tough to detect this. If you smoke one cigarette, you may never trip, a, trip an enzyme-linked assay. Chronic users, however, because it's, it has a, so we talk about VD2, which is volume distribution. It depends on how lipophilic a drug is. Where the drug goes, does it stay in your blood? Does it go in the tissue? Marijuana has a pretty, pretty high VD, so it's pretty lipophilic. So if you're a chronic user, this builds up in your fat. So let's say that you're a chronic user and you stop using for three to four days. So even though you're not high because the clinical effects don't last that long, uh, if you're a chronic user, your concentration in your blood will still be pretty elevated. And that's when we talk about detection times, chronic users can be detected up to 30 days, even with, at, with uh, abstinence from the drug. And so this is really important. Uh, I don't know if we'll get to it later, but this becomes really, really important when we talk about per se laws 
and other things with marijuana. Do you guys, so a per se law is basically, if your blood concentration is over X or your urine concentration is over X, regardless of how impaired you are, you can then be prosecuted by the law for being intoxicated. So I think the best example obviously is, is ethanol. So if your blood concentration is over 80, per se, you're intoxicated, even if you're not intoxicated. So as we move forward with legislation and legalizing marijuana, uh, this becomes a very big point of contention because some places like San Francisco have a per se law of five nanograms per ml. And I can tell you right now, chronically, if you're a chronic user, you definitely have a concentration over five nanograms per ml. And so it becomes a difficulty saying, well, so if we're gonna legalize it, are all chronic users, they just can't drive? So it's something that has to be, uh, when we talk about the form of kinetics, it's something that has to be considered. There's a few other things that really gets into the weeds that we've looked at. So I talked about the metabolites earlier. The carboxylic acid metabolite peaks much later than the parent compound. So if you take THC and you take the carboxylic metabolite and they're about one to one, so if you look at the ratios and they're about one to one in the blood, it's pretty safe to, to, to assume that an individual has used marijuana, only, let me rephrase that, only smoked marijuana within the last 20 to 40 minutes. You can't use this with edibles, which also makes it difficult in the state of Colorado where that's a huge portion of the population that uses marijuana, uses edibles. Um, but again, this really goes down to, is the individual impaired? Because several driving studies have shown that with chronic use, you're not near as impaired as acute use. Uh, a lot of this I'll leave, leave later on for what some of the other uh, speakers talk about public health and its medical impact uh, and marijuana's impact on the community and how we deal with it. Um, but I'm gonna leave kind of pharmacokinetics there. Uh, so moving on, we talk about acute toxicity and what kind of what he alluded to, the biggest problem that we see, that we've seen in the state of Colorado is in the pediatric population. Really no one dies from marijuana, uh, especially not adults. Adults can definitely have a bad time if they're a new user, they never used before. Uh, I've treated several, you know, typically it's a young adolescent, smaller individual, they come in, their friend says, hey, do 20, 30 milligrams. Um, and four hours later, they're <clears throat> not having a good time. Like I, I've tried to ask them like exactly how it feels and it just, it is a out of this world, surreal feeling. This just, it's kind of like I want off this ride and I can't get off. And so the best thing we can do for them is give them some medicine to calm them down and like let it ride out. Uh, tachycardia, we see almost universally in intoxicated patients. They always have fast heart rates. Uh, they typically have soft blood pressure, so if they get up too fast, like I said, they kind of near black out. Uh, the psychoactive component uh, is, is weird. Uh, it's kind of difficult to describe. The best way I've had it described to me is a lot of times if we, we drink, we drink too much. Uh, sometimes we have this feeling like invincibility. We don't really realize we're drunk. So the way I've had it described to me is with marijuana, you get the same, uh, if, you, if you do too much of it, <clears throat> you get the same uh, inebriated feeling, but you're fully aware of it. 
which makes it all the more uh, disheartening and not fun. Uh, so that's kind of what we see in adults. And adults universally do well. I know there's some, there was a study in Circulation, which is a journal back in 2000, I believe it was 2011, uh, could be 2001, maybe mix up my ones, but it looked at the risk of myocardial infarction in adults that use marijuana. The way they did it, there's a lot of confounding factors in it, uh, but they found that you're five times more likely to have a heart attack if you have risk factors within an hour after smoking marijuana. Now, the way they did it, I can tell you, it's, it's kind of equivocal. It was so rare. I think they, they interviewed 3,300 patients, of which 1,800 used marijuana, of which nine had a heart attack that used it within an hour. So you can see what, what a small number that is. Uh, they just compared that to people that don't use marijuana, and you're just five more times more likely. But it's, it's hard to draw any real conclusions without being able to do uh, actual research into it, uh, which is a big problem with it being a Schedule One drug. But that's really, again, that's what we see in, in adults. So briefly, we talked about spice earlier and how it, it, uh, it is a single compound that has a very, very high affinity for that one receptor. So it's not 60 different uh, psychoactive compounds, it's one. And these were, uh, these were actually engineered in the, in the early 2000s uh, by uh, German, initially, uh, Jay Hoffman. And so the series is actually JWH, and those are the first synthetic cannabinoids. Um, so they cause, they, they cause seizures, dysrhythmias, all kind of bad things. Um, moving up to try to wrap this up really quickly. So in pediatrics is, the, is the, the cohort that we really, really worry about. So with them, you can actually see, see like significant CNS depression to, the, to borderline coma. Uh, you can see respiratory depression in the more severe cases. A lot of times they'll have nausea, vomiting, and you worry about asphyxia, uh, aspiration. Um, they typically do better, and there's very few, there's a few deaths, case reports, but there's almost always a confounding factor like, you know, one that we were involved with, there is a diagnosis also of myocarditis, which is like inflammation of the heart. Marijuana's never caused that, could have been a virus. Uh, but we definitely have seen a large uptick in pediatric uh, exposures pediatric presentations in the emergency department. So there is definitely a social burden and a burden to the medical field in that component. But as far as adults, we really don't see that. Um, so I'm gonna wrap that up. Uh, a little dry, but I hope that gives you a better understanding of how marijuana and cannabinoids work.